and welcome to the Geek Pride cast. This is Peter Ray Allison, yours truly, um, for Geek Pride, no less, talking, well, it's just me today, no Matt, because I wanted this interview all to myself, because I'm greedy like that. Um, basically, I have been wanting to do this interview now for years. Um, it is this month, August 2023, is the 30th anniversary of Mage the Ascension, the role-playing game, part of the World of Darkness games from White Wolf. And joining me on the podcast today is Phil Bacato, otherwise known as Sat- Satya, who is the lead developer for Mage, or markedly was the lead developer of Mage. And was. Was, sorry, I should say. My apologies. And, yeah, Satya, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm one of a number. Uh, I had just put up on TikTok the other day uh, a video of the various people who have been the designer for Mage. And because I also included Dark Ages Mage, Mage of the Awakening, uh, and Victorian Mage, that ended up being a whole lot more designers than even I was aware of. Uh, But I am the person who's handled Mage longest. I was originally hired in 1993 did it until 1999 when uh, uh, Jess uh, Hennig and I I uh, kind of transitioned over a few books. I continued doing Sorcerer's Crusade until 2000 uh, and then uh, did another book, not in a lead designer capacity, but just as an author with uh, with Bill Bridges in 2003, I think, Uh, and then uh, rejoined May or you know, rather return to Mage because at that point it was under a different company uh, with Mage 20 and worked on Mage 20 as lead designer between 2012 and 2019 and then transitioned again to just being an author at that point and I'm still working on it um, through the Storytellers Vault and I have a number of books that are still in the pipeline that I've done but with other lead designers so I've been associated with Mage for the better part of 30 years, but I haven't always been the lead designer of Mage. There, there have been quite a few people. You are that. that damn Mage guy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It started, that 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 label started as a joke and then um, it just kind of stuck. So yeah, kind of like Seder for that matter. Yeah. Uh, my my preferred name at this point, Seder or Satoros, uh, started as a joke with Ian Lemke uh, when I worked on uh, Changeling uh, first edition. Uh, I'd written the uh, the Kiths entry in that, and Ian asked me, you know, how how was it? Would you like? And I said, I, I love that. I especially especially related well with the satyrs for some reason. Hey, Lassie says that's because you are a satyr, Phil, and that <laughs> stuck. Um, and then after I left White Wolf, I uh, just I got a a, a satyr uh, laughing pan uh, tattoo, uh, and just started going by satyr around and the name stuck and it just suits me much better than phil so <laughs> that's what i and um my friends in greece uh chris and me Sataros, um in 2011 and i was just like satyros fabricado that has a ring to it so that's been my professional name ever since yeah but it's like but there is something to be said about like having a name that has a certain ring to it yeah i mean like my name is peter allison but i found mm-hmm. adding the ray to it just adds a yeah rhythm mm-hmm. but, yeah. but anyway again we're going off topic but is what is i mean for, for the viewers that have not experienced the wonder that is mage what is mage the ascension uh, mage the ascension is a game about remaking the reality that you are given into the reality that you need that's, that's yeah that's about empowerment yeah 
That's a basic thing. I mean, what I find is, no, Mage is very different to other role-playing games in the world of darkness. Um, the, the example is, you are in vampire, you're a vampire, you're a monster, you, you know. In werewolf, you're a, you know, you're a werewolf. Tall rage. <laughs> yeah, you're a ten yeah. foot tall Captain Planet with a yeah. body count. Yeah. Yeah. And in Wraith, you are a ghost. You're someone who someone who is dead. But in Mage, you're still human. You have the power to move mountains, but you're still human. And it's a game about hope. I mean, that was such a fascinating realization when it be like the mages are very different to other roleplay games in the world of darkness. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, it, and as, as we talk about in the introduction for, uh, for Mage 20th, you can still be a monster. In fact, uh, and, and I go into this in, in more detail in the book of the fallen and fallen companions, humans really are the worst monsters ever. Uh, and the core struggle in Mage is not technocracy versus traditions. Cause that's something that, that can be part of the meta plot or you can reject it completely. It's not about, um, you know, wizards versus monsters or anything like that. It's, it's really a game about, uh, about pitting, about your, you and yourself. Um, the biggest monster in Mage is the one in the mirror. Yeah. I mean, that, that rings true of something Garth Ennis once said, who, who was writing Hellblazer. He said, like, no, for all these factors that you've got these demons, devils, vampires, and absolute, you know, horrific creatures, but the really, the true horror is people. Yeah. Yeah, and it's I, 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 the 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 famous quote from uh, from No Exit by John John Paul Sartre, um, Sartre, Sartre, Sartre um, is both hell is other people, and in greater context, hell is other people unless you can unless you figure out how to get along with each other, and both are true with Mage um, because. In Mage, the struggle, as in Vampire, to a degree, the struggle is to have the potential to be a monster and not to be and not to become one. Uh, the metaphor of the path runs through uh, through my work with Mage, uh, which is the idea that you start off, um, you start off in basically in a state of innocence, uh, more or less, um, and you awaken literally at some point to the to the the realization that you have the power to remake reality in your image and the path and the various different ways that can go is, so what are you going to do with that power? Are you going to indulge yourself? Are you going to destroy your enemies? Whoever those enemies might be perceived to be, are you going to make yourself a better person? Are you going to make the world a better place? And if so, and here's the real conflict within, uh, within mage in a social standpoint, what does better world look like? because everybody has different ideas about what that looks like. And they have different ideas about what that better world should cost. And that's really where the, uh, the various different factional conflicts come in is because you've got some people who think a better world looks like a world under technological control where everything is monitored, where everything is, you know, where, where the random elements are filtered out, where the human, where the human animal is upgraded to a better version um where ignorance is not uh where ignorance is not bliss 
uh, unless, of course, it's the ignorance that the authorities tell you because the authorities have the ability to decide what's better for you than you do. You know, or is that better world a world in which nature is the greatest law and humans bow to that? Uh, is it a world where you can constantly upgrade yourself through technology to a greater uh, to to a greater uh, uh, sense of being and a greater sense of realization? Is it one where everybody has can unlock the power of of, uh, of wonder? Uh, is it one where people all unite into a single great faith? Uh, with the one source of all things? Is it one in which we realize that we're all mad here and that's okay? The various different factions in Mage have very, very different views of what that better world looks like and how to bring it about. And those views can get pretty fucking bloody if you're not careful. Yeah, and when you have the power to move a mountain, having an argument with someone has to be very nuanced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, how did you first become involved in Mage way back in 19, way back in the heady days of 1993? 1993. Well, um, it actually goes back, my involvement with, with Mage and White Wolf actually goes back to before White Wolf. Um, Bill Bridges and his, uh, and his brother John and I were in a group called Games Masters at Virginia Commonwealth University, which was 40 years ago this, uh, this, this month in 1983. Wow. And Games Masters had some really radical for that time uh, ideas of what role-playing games could be. We we viewed role-playing games not just as, you know, uh, kill kill orcs, get treasure, go up levels, but as, um, you know, as, as, as uh, shared storytelling and potential mythology and, a, and an avant-garde art form. And so when, um, over the course of this, uh, uh, the the older or rather the younger brother of one of the founders of games masters the founder being daniel greenberg the younger brother being andrew greenberg andrew greenberg got involved with uh with white wolf when the white wolf game studios was first coming together in 1990 1991 and so he hired bill in 1991 to work on vampire uh, as a freelancer and then the, the following year bill started in as the werewolf developer uh, in 1992 and 31 years ago, uh, hired me who at that point I had already been professionally writing for several years, hired me as a writer on, on werewolf. Fast forward a year later to that to 1993, uh, my life was at a, a, a complete dead end. It was chaos. I hated everything and I need, knew I needed a change. And so I said, I want, I, I want to do your job, but with mage at that point, Mage was uh, undergoing a very uh, a, a, a hasty rewrite into what is now, you know, Mage First Edition, and uh, I interviewed for the job. And 30 years ago this month, I got it. Uh, and at that point, I asked Ken Cliff when when I started, I said, "How much crea- how much creative latitude do I have with this?" He said, "He's he's like." As long as you don't immediately throw out everything, you know, um, that's in the book, uh, it's all yours. We don't have the slightest idea what to do with it. So basically, I was like, well, I've been involved with, um, let's say, metaphysical subcultures since my teens. Um, I've always been fascinated by uh, magic, faith, religion, uh, and the ways in which those things can be used and abused. I have a lot of real life experience with those things as well. And so when I started with Mage, I was like, I was fascinated by Stuart, Stuart Wick, the, 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 the original creator of Mage had several 
absolutely fantastic, absolutely radical ideas. The biggest one being that the mage is the, you know, is change personified, essentially. Uh, and that magic is not a series of combat maneuvers or a series of spells. Magic is an extension of the mage. And I was like, that. Fuck yes, that. Because that is what made mage different from everything else. Uh, and I was also very influenced uh, in, in my approach to, so, okay, so what does that mean uh, by the film Rashomon, Akira Kurosawa's film Rashomon? Uh, which is about the subjective nature of truth uh, and about how everybody's version of truth is a little different. When I looked at the, I, when I, when I extrapolated on Stuart's ideas of different mage factions as different ways of viewing the truth, I said, okay, well, different ways of viewing the truth are going to have very, very different realities. And so that by extension created mage as a game of warring realities. And Warring realities, as we are living through right now in this world, at this moment, warring realities can be really fucking messy. Absolutely, because um, we have now have that phrase, alternative facts, alternative truths. Yes, exactly. Alternative facts. Fuck, that's frightening. Yeah. And uh, that was one of the big influences uh, on Mage 20 uh, was, okay, you know, rather than, because at that time when... Um, when we picked when uh, when when Rich Thomas started on its path, and uh, picked up on the idea of doing Mage twentieth anniversary, and he and I met. We decided first thing we wanted was a what we uh, we called a Mage for all Mage fans, um, folks who are, are, are uh, familiar with Mage might re might might remember that there was a massive edition war uh, between the second edition and uh, the revised edition. Uh, and we wanted to heal the edition war and make it so that mage would be something that everybody, theoretically everybody, I mean, obviously not everybody's going to enjoy it, but yeah. most mage fans would go, yeah, this is my mage. And one of the big ways that we did that was to make the meta plot, uh, make it meta plot neutral, give a, a number of different, ele a, a number of different potential elements of the direction the meta plot could go, but never force the players to go this is we present a number of options because this is what it could be what do you want to do with it um yeah. and because the different editions of mage are surprisingly out of all the other kind of worlds of darkness games, they are the most diverse yeah i found i know for example is the first edition is just full of ideas the second edition i find is probably more focused and Streamlined, I think it's about it's more focused in terms of ideas. Uh, re revised was grounded, very grounded on earth compared to the more kind of up, like wild imaginings of especially the first edition. And mm -hmm. Tony kind of took all that and just said, This is what this is what it can be. It's what you want it to be is your is your your reality. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And well, and and when when uh, when we were when we were putting that together for uh, for the twentieth anniversary, I, I read through the entire series, uh, reread the books that I had worked on, read the books that I hadn't worked on, uh, and I I spent a lot of time talking with uh, with mage fans. Um, I had put together a brain trust who are credited in the uh, in the book, but also just went on the forums a lot and was like, you know, what do you like? What do you want? Also be in between the time that i had left mage actually really 
I, I started asking people what they wanted to see from Mage from the, the first my first day on the job uh, at Gen Con in 1993, asking people, what do you want from it? What do you want to see? Uh, and even after I left uh, Mage as the line design as the line developer, lead designer, uh, I still had people coming up to me, you know, conventions and sometimes just like at literally at, at bars or at parties going, oh, my God, you're, you're that guy. It's one of the reasons I changed my name, actually, was because I got a lot of, oh, oh my God, you're that guy. Um, and I didn't want to be that guy. I wanted to be known for, for me, not for, uh, for what I had done in the 1990s. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I looked at the legacy that Mage had had and said, how can we make a game that lives up to that? Uh, and for that, I went to the fans. Yeah, so basically, I mean, that kind of asked me a question. Is asked, makes me ask, ask the question is, when you first joined Mage and like what was the lead developer on the second edition, what was your initial thinking? How did you, you talk to the fans, but how did you kind of move it forward, so to speak? Uh, for the first few months and the first few books, it was, oh, shit! <laughs> Bill Bridges and I were just talking about this on my Facebook earlier today. The 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 pace at which we were creating content for those books was insane um, back in the early days. Uh, it, we were putting out uh, for the for the the core lines, you know, the five core lines. We were putting out a book a month for years, uh, and that was that was the pace that you needed in order to keep the lights on and the doors open and the salaries paid back in the nineties, because role-playing games were considered at that point, a disposable medium. And your company was only as viable as your next issue, your next product. We, we were, you know, the, the, the role-playing game market was based on the comic book market, whereas this issue, this issue, this issue. So we were just like that. So there wasn't a whole lot of thought and planning in that first year. Year, uh, there was a lot of consolidation and a lot of brainstorming. Um, Mage First Edition uh, is very, there were a lot of ideas presented, but there's not a lot of framework or substance to it. There are 10 groups, nine traditions, and another group that is sort of a tradition, but not a tradition. And there are five technocracy conventions, and there are the Marauders and the Fandy, but there's not a lot of framework for how these who these people are how these groups function um what historical events led to them taking the forms that they did uh so one of my first jobs as as developer other than to get the books done um involved getting together a you know getting together a group of collaborators and figuring out the framework the backstory the meta plot whatever you want to call it uh the history that may turned you know I'm going to deal with the spirits into this, but you know, into the dream speaker tradition or the order of Hermes tradition or the verbena tradition, depending on how you approach dealing with which spirits, you know, or the celestial forest tradition, how you, you know, how you dealt with which spirits, how the different approaches to magic became the factions of the 20th century uh, was something that, was myself, Bill Bridges, Sam Chupp, Judith McLaughlin, Kathy Ryan, Brian Campbell, Owl Going, Owl Going Back. Turns out that's not his actual. Anyway, I'm not going to go off on that tangent. Let's just, yeah. Anyway, um, Nikki Ray, Jackie Cassada, um, and uh, 
Chris Hind. I think Chris Hind was part of that as well. Um, but we brainstormed a lot on how do these pieces hang together? Travis Williams, um, how do these pieces hang together? Uh, and what's that history look like? Fortunately, I'm a history buff. Uh, so I was able to go, okay, um, this historically looks like this. This historically looks like this. If we move this, this, this way over into this. Um, and we, we made that 20th century and we gave that 20th century mage a historical framework that literally went back to prehistory, uh, which created a gargantuan meta plot. But one of the first things that I address in Mage Made Easy is you don't need to use any of it. You could use all of it, which would be insane, but you don't actually need to use any of it because the core of mage is not the traditions. It's not the technocracy. It's not the meta plot or the history. The core of mage is you have the power to change the world. What are you going to do with it? Yeah, it's all about the player's impact on the world, not the tradition's yeah. impact. Exactly. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I think, I mean, I'm about to, well, in a few months time, I'll be running a game of mage with some friends who've never played mage before, who've never played World of Doctor before. And I'm just going, I'm just almost chucking out the whole tradition and technocracy yeah. policy and just saying, you're mages. Yeah. Your friends, you just happen to be in the same area and just notice each other's a little bit different from everyone else. And, oh, and that's things happening over there that you have no idea about. Yeah, and off you go. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, you mentioned the revised, the, the, the revised Grounded earlier. And, and the reason I laughed is because that's both a... That's that's a source of of both um, amusement and consternation for me because two of the books most uh, most associated with ground, grounded um, real world mage uh, were actually books that I did during the second edition era. Uh, Destiny's yeah. Price and Destiny's Prime. Guide. Yeah, I've got um, Destiny's Price of Death. Cool. It's yeah. it's very dated because I mean it, it, we wrote it in 1994, uh, so you know it, it's reflective of the crack war era, and some of yeah. it comes across pretty off the wall now. But the, the scary thing is, is it was aside from the magical elements, it was absolutely grounded in reality, uh, and that was one of the things that in the first edition it was, you know, flying through all of these mm -hmm. different worlds and doing all of this different stuff, and I am myself had had practice with you know practice and experience with with metaphysical subcultures witch wars etc 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 and i had just come out of living in a bad neighborhood yeah. and being really poor and working shitty jobs and going what do you do if you wake up with the power to change reality as in a way i did in 1993 yeah. <laughs> um and this is what you grew up with you know, you didn't grow up, you know, in a, a horizon realm or you didn't grow up in a wizard's castle and you're not part of a blood wine of witches or something like that. What if you worked a shitty job and then one day woke up with the power to change the world? How would that affect you and how would that affect your how would that influence your view of the world? And I made that the center of my approach on a lot of levels to made. So on one hand, I had this huge tapestry to work with. And there were books like the Book of Worlds and Horizon Stronghold of Hope. But to me, the one the, the books that mattered the most and came the most from the heart were Technocracy Syndicate, uh, Cult of Ecstasy tradition book, Dream Speakers tradition book, Destiny's Price, Orphan Survival Guide that are all about having a shitty life until the moment comes when you have a chance to change it. Yeah, I mean, I love that dichotomy. 
which means you have the power of reality, but you're very, you're still human. You are still fundamentally human and all that it brings. And mm-hmm. that is a source of, such a source of such good storytelling because it's very human. Yeah. And that was, that was part of my approach too, to go back to your earlier question, because the, the, the mage in its initial appearance was very slippery and hold, hard to hold on to. Um, because it was a lot of ideas um part of what i did with uh with what those that those first few years was to focus on you it's about you and that's where the idea of presenting the tradition and convention books that was going back to the influence of rashomon on uh, on mage to each tradition book and each convention book was portrayed not as a series of objective statements, the virtual adepts believe this, but it was portrayed through the eyes of someone coming into that group and the experience of that a person coming into that group. So you were seeing what reality looked like to them. And sometimes that worked better than others. Yeah, uh, It was definitely a process. Um, but, uh, but that idea... Um, so when, uh, when Mage first came out, uh, it was greeted with a combination of, oh, my God, this is awesome, combined with what the fuck is this? <laughs> and the, there you had the two realities, you know, the two realities, but you had those, those two reactions. Some people are like, oh, my God, you can change vampires into soap bubbles. This is awesome. And other people are like, I don't even know how to play this. And part of my challenge there, if I wanted to keep my job. So um, my this is about three four months into into work this is one of the one of the scary things about working in the same public in the same office as as the uh the warehouse is that when the returns come back from the stores of the unsold product you get to see them and i just had gone back into the warehouse for something and i saw this huge palette covered in mage books i was like oh my god what what's that and one of the 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 warehouse guys like i don't know i guess people just didn't want to play it and i freaked the fuck out i went back to my office and i was just a wreck um and i was like fuck man i'm gonna get fired i'm gonna get the mage is gonna crash and burn because nobody understands it nobody's gonna want to play it and my next to the office my, my roommate collaborator and the guy in the office next to mine brian campbell talks me down he comes into my office i'm just like fuck man i'm gonna go back to working in the fucking shoe store and stuff and, and brian's like no no it, it's okay it's okay this happens this happens breathe <sighs> okay understand you know mages it's a lot for people to take in what can we do to make people want to what how can we get people to, to want to buy it unfortunately I, I also had a background in in the theater uh originally i was an actor between uh, about 1980 81 about 80 88 i think 89 uh, when i realized that i just wasn't going to be able to make a, a living at it but i, I trained in that as uh, in college i have an acting degree uh and i thought Focus it on you are the mage rather than mages are reality. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you are the mage. What does being a mage mean to you? And that snapped everything into focus for me. And that's really been the thing that's kept that's that's guided uh, both my vision and the vision of the people who've worked with me or worked on the line since me since, uh, from that point onward was you are the mage. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, one thing I found when I've been introducing Mage to new players is that they don't appreciate that you don't get spells as mm-hmm. such in Mage. It's a sphere system. Like, you know, it was like each different sphere has a different kind of area of expertise. And again, like, well, where's the fireballs? Well, no, 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 you don't. You have areas, mm-hmm. spheres of influence. Mm-hmm. That's it. And you combine them. Yeah. And it's just like, it's, it's kind of like life. Mm-hmm. You can detect it. Then you can modify it slightly. Then you can create minor ones. Then you can, then you can um, modify larger ones. And then you create big ones. It's like, it's graded spheres of influence. And when you kind of explain like that, and so you're not, a spell like your wizard with a robes and a spell book. Forget yeah. that. You are someone who believes fundamentally mm-hmm. that they can change reality, and that and their magic is just them changing that reality to suit their will. Mm-hmm. And kind of, it took a few kind of explanations. Playing like, no, you are not a traditional mage, uh, no wizard with robes and a hat and all well, that. You can be. You can, yeah, yeah. If, that, if you that's can, the way you think magic yeah. works, you can totally do that. Yeah, you could be like a hermetic. You can be like a hermetic a Crowley-esque mage, and you know, with a spell book and all the uh, paraphernalia as your focus. Mm-hmm. Or you could be, you know, someone inspired by Jackie Chan films. Yeah, which was pretty much me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just working on for for my TikTok. I was just working on a, a list of mage films. Which, you know, anybody who's read Mage knows that most of the books have this recommended media list in the back. So there are literally somebody asked, you know, what 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 are what movies are Mage movies? Well, I can like name dozens, but I'm trying to boil it down to uh, boiling it, boiling it down to, to TikTok level. Oh, uh, I do not yeah. envy you that. <laughs> oh. I mean, the way I approach it, when I'm kind of explaining it to my friends, is I can kind of give you. Uh, like a tradition focused like mm-hmm. these are sort of like you know, the Akashayana um, mage films like for example I think like the one starring Jet Li back, back in 2001 or like if you want to or Hell, um, Hellblazer the, the um, is an example of a hermetic or possibly yeah. an orphan Constantine, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Constantine. Um, but really as in one all encompassing film that is Mage, that's a that's a hard. I do not envy you that. <laughs> yeah, probably the probably the the probably the single most mage mage movie is probably the original Matrix. Um, yeah, but, uh, which you know, I, I I'm curious. People always ask, you know, were they influenced by? I have no idea. Uh, I mean, obviously they started working on the Matrix in the mid 90s yeah so the question of whether or not the wachowskis had ever even heard of this at that point obscure role-playing game which at that point it's funny one of the funny things about being a, a gamer for a gamer for over 40 for almost 45 years and being in the field for over 30 years is how much the perception of role-playing games and what role-playing games are changed i mean when i first got involved in it uh in 1979 uh gaming was this weird little thing that you might find on the on a few uh, shelves in a hobby store and then it became satanic oh satanic God. panic satanic panic gamers are going to sacrifice your children <laughs> you know and uh uh and and now gaming is so much a part of 
reality in general. It's so much a part yeah. of media culture that we don't even really think of it. It's not an yeah. obscure thing anymore. Yeah, a, a book I collaborated on with Rosie Garland and Dr. Ian Lamond was published early this year, which oh, cool. and um, included my chapter on role playing games. And basically, like it's an academic journal looking at like the history history of role playing games all the way from initial satanic panic all the way through to now where it's used in therapy. I interviewed um, a professional therapist who uses role playing games as a tool for overcoming confidence and body dysmorphia. Cool. And yeah, it's now we've gone this complete circle almost. Like, go, it was hated. I mean, it was on sixty yeah. minutes with Guy, Gary Gygax mm-hmm. and Patricia Pulling. Which an absolute car crash, and we had films inspired by um, <laughs> mazes and monsters. Exactly, and now we've got films like Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was all about the camaraderie, or you got um, yeah, a films that we uh, take um, the mechanics almost or the tropes of role-playing games and apply it to mm-hmm. cinema and it's recognized like yeah. hit points levels mm-hmm. uh, armor class those are all terminology from mm-hmm. role-playing games and particularly D in this case yeah. but level been, up level Everybody up knows what level up means you've leveled up you, you get another level and again that came from like, gaming and mm-hmm. yeah we have you know geeks have inherited the earth so to speak I'm curious, have you read um, uh, Technosis, uh, Magic, Myth, and Mysticism in the Age of Information by Eric Davis? No, but I would love to, but it sounds awesome. It's a great book. Uh, it's okay. a little bit dated because it came out in 1999. Uh, he did a revised edition, I think, around 2007 or so. But still, it's an excellent, very, very dense, but excellent book about how uh, the about the roots of the information age are basically sex, drugs, rock and roll, and geek culture. Uh, and I mean, they are, and he mentions gaming in there, um, because, uh, he, he describes how so many of the elements of this technology that you and I are using right now and that people are watching us on, uh, whenever this gets broadcast, those, those technologies came out of people who played D and D and they incorporated elements of, of what they, what they experienced and what they enjoyed about gaming into the technologies that they created that we use now and that our world literally depends on um at this point and that to me is fascinating as somebody who has you know grown up with that as somebody who started his career in the days before google existed and amazon existed um when you know being online meant you you know you went to you 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 went to a bbs and and chatted with somebody who was in an alt group uh as opposed to you know broadcasting stuff on on youtube or having having a goddamn computer in your <laughs> fucking pocket well yeah i mean kind of think about it is like back in the day gaming was pretty much the purview of the thinkers the the nerds for the better and the geeks the social outcasts and for the, that weren't sporty that weren't you know as you know that weren't popular and then now these people are now in all positions of authority because we studied we kind of went into university we're now in positions of authority where we kind of take that language that we learned during our formative years and apply it to what they're working on so yeah. it makes absolute sense to me mm-hmm. I mean, like i spoke like doesn't people like no um i was talking to the actor that played uh, witch Antilles. 
and he said, I know that um, he's he speaking to some people in the Navy and that uh, a lot of Navy recruits, especially in like TAC Command, joined because they read the Lensman books by E.E. E. Doc Smith and they want to do TAC Command like it was in, in, in those novels. <laughs> and it was like, uh-huh. they're almost disappointed that it's not like that, but it's that inspiration and mm-hmm. it kind of, it, your inspirations lead you where you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's interesting that, that you that you mentioned uh, the therapeutic elements as well, because uh, my uh, uh, my my late uh, my late girlfriend uh, Coyote Ward, uh, we met at a gaming convention, and uh, she was on the autistic spectrum. As it turns out, in, in hindsight, I am as well, although far far less obviously so. She was fairly. Um, she's one of the people that that you know back in the day people look uh, you know would look at and go oh, what what's with her well um she you know had had a lot of of um challenges interacting with other people and role-playing games as she told me role-playing games gave her a structure and a toolkit with which to interact with people uh so that even if she wasn't if even even if she didn't necessarily understand what they wanted from her she could rephrase it in gaming terms so that she could communicate back to them um, in a way that they would understand. Uh, and you know, role-playing games build a bridge. And I think one of the reasons that, that, they, that they're good at that is because so many uh, ND people, neuro, neurodivergent, neuro, non-typical, whatever, whatever phraseology, the, the phraseology itself is definitely a work in progress at this point. Yeah. Uh, people uh, can, have, have worked in the field yeah. and, and continue to work in the field. Yeah, well, one thing I noticed in my research is that during a March and April 2020, is gaming spiked. Just as the lockdowns came down, everyone started role playing online, and that wasn't just people shifting from you know to in, in person to online, but also people that were lock, like locked down in quarantine for the first time in their lives couldn't go out and do anything. Yeah. Started role playing, and it became. And it continued. Uh, people kept doing it um, because role playing gives you a platform for conversation. Yes, exactly. Uh, my wife, uh, Sandra Damiana Swan, uh, who, can, who who coined the absolutely phenomenal term, uh, which we quoted in Mage Twenty, um, Mage or rather Magic. Magic is the fine order of getting off your ass and doing something. Um, Sandy uh, had gone from being a casual gamer to some to during the pandemic someone who has used um video gaming and the community around video game streamers in particular uh as her primary social outlet during the uh during the pandemic just found that 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 level of interaction actually suits her much better than having to go out and deal with people in person <laughs> and that's all surprise i mean it has enabled i think i mean mage has been a fundamental part of my life ever since i started playing it. i mean it inspired me um D was like introduced to me gaming mm-hmm. the white uh, the white wolf games introduced me to the power of gaming and like the potential but mage is the one that really fundamentally inspired me it allowed me it gave me it proved to me that no if you want change you have to go out and do that change up you can't wait for that change to happen because someone will change it for you you have yes. to go out and make the change that you want and it was kind of that kick in the head that I needed. And I went out there and I kept went dead and I keep doing it. And like, 
And I thought, no, I've got to do it myself. And like I say, I started out as a engineer and it wasn't doing me any good. I was working from home a lot of the time. Um, I didn't see my kids much because I was leaving the house at 7.30, getting back at half seven. Now I'm, a, I don't know, I'm going to become a writer. I know what I want to do. I worked my ass off. But I said, I can't just wait for the, to become a writer. I have to go out and become a writer. And I needed that thinking, which kind of mage taught me. But you have to have the willpower. You have to have the determination to go and do it. Because if you don't do it, you're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. And like you said, and other people will do it for you. Exactly. And I was, and again, people kind of say, oh, you, you might want to go back to university and do this. No, I've already gone to university. Thank you very much. I do not go and need to study another degree. <laughs> which will push me. No, I've done it. Thank you. Once, once was enough. But And I enjoyed my time at university. But trying to tell someone who's got who's married with two children that need to go to university and would have a job as well. I was like, no, thank you. So I cut my, I cut my ties and went went freelance and it's my only regret I didn't do it sooner. Excellent. Congratulations. Thank you. What man. are you working on? Um I'm a freelance journalist. Um I write I write for the BBC, Computer Weekly, IT Pro, mostly cover cybersecurity, but also uh, I'm with the editor of Geek Pride. And basically, I write for anyone. <laughs> but yeah, uh, but yeah, it's uh, but again, if it wasn't for Mage, that almost taught me that mentality that I probably wouldn't be here. And that is actually quite mind bending to think about. Because I mean, it's just a role playing game. But then we come back to that discussion of like role playing games are used in a bread because it can be used to teach you skills that you need. Um, like during the during the pandemic, I was uh, running games, role playing games for my children, and it demonstrated them like negotiation. It demonstrated it demonstrated them mental arithmetic. It they had to work together, they had to collaborate, they had to kind of manage themselves. And they go, well, we've got this sword. Well, you're the fighter, you have to. We've got this skull. Well, you're the mage, you have the skull. Mm-hmm. And it kind of just taught them how to manage all that and. Again, role games are incredibly powerful, and mage especially because, again, you are the mage. You are, you know, if you want to make change, you have to make that change for yourself. But yeah, yeah. and like we get into like to it's twenty. Well, we're now the thirtieth anniversary of mage. I mean, where do you see mage going from here? <laughs> oh, is that a weighted question? Well, it's. Um... That real where it where image goes from here depends on two things. On one hand, the fans, which I I maintain as as I said earlier, that ultimately mage belongs to the fans, not to me, not to the uh, not to the IP holders. It belongs to the fans. And then on the other hand, there is the company that owns the rights to mage, and they have some very different ideas about that. And I'm not going to go into that because I make it a point not to trash people I work with. Much. Fair enough. Now, well, all I'll say is I once spoke to Justin Achille um, a couple of years ago, and I asked him because Master Mage fan. So, what's what's the what's are we going to get M five a Mage a fifth edition of Mage? And he said, "I am the World of Darkness brand manager, um, not the Vampire the Masquerade brand manager." Make of that what he well said. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that one, we've had Hunter and we've had Werewolf, which has just come out at Gen Con as we speak. Yep. Um, so, uh, I mean, but then again, uh, Sphere System 
it's just such a wonderful mechanic because it, yeah, okay. it it's great it works that's the thing it works so well because it, it, it but for for some people, I, I, as as the person who have, has wrestled with trying to make it comprehensible for thirty years, um, some people it's very very intuitive. I mean, because that's the way. It, and to give credit where credit is due, the the Sphere system is the creation of Travis Williams and Andrew Greenberg, uh, and it was rooted in the, uh, the, the 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 improvisational magic system of Ars Magica, uh, and in its in its original. Uh, it, its original version was written in oh, like two weeks and not play tested, um, and so part of the part of my my journey with Mage was to was to make that actually work. Was as, as you said to put it into the there's this stage, then this stage, then this stage, then this stage, um, and to make that system flow through focus, which we redefined a number of different ways. And finally redefined, I think, in a way that works best in Mage Twenty as focus is your belief, your your practice, and your tools. Your belief is how you believe magic works and why you believe magic works. Your practice is how you put that belief in, how you put that belief into action. Your tools are the things that you use as you put your practice into, uh, as you put that belief into practice. Uh, it took us a little while to, to come up with that. And it can be a very intuitive system for the right people and other people find it absolutely incomprehensible so it really depends on the gamer. Um, I, I don't know whether they will carry that through in fifth edition or not. Uh, I will very, I do not know that I am not a pro, that I am not part of that process, but I have not been uh, in discussions about that process for quite a while with the M5 process. So my guess is probably not. So I don't know what they have in mind for that. Well, I'm not going to discuss about M5 because we know nothing. There's nothing to be said, so yep, there's no point. Exactly. But I think, like as you say, M20 edition of the Sphere system, I think is 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 the probably well, obviously the best iteration because it's been iterated and developed, and it just works for me. I mean, there's always going to be discussion of can you do that with that level of that sphere, or can you do, the, or is it that level? There's always, mm-hmm. and that is subjective based on the GM, and you, and you kind of have to say the GM is the final authority on that because and it's because it's so subjective but for me it kind of the sphere system rewards imagination you have to be creative yes you can't just say well you know i have these spells well no it doesn't work you you have these spheres of influence and the only limitation is your mind is your creative how imaginative do you want to be can you be and, well, and, and what you can get away with doing exactly yeah <laughs> whether whether or not you can actually make the whether or not you can actually make the role and whether or not um what you're trying is too hard for reality to accept and um, but again you need that kind of like restraint oh yeah otherwise i mean it's it, because i like the idea of like the mages are kind of scurrying in the shadows mm-hmm. because you know they're they're, uh, they're hunted they are they are very few and there's a there's a kind of yeah, paradoxes that like people that change reality. Uh, which people change reality? How is the question? And get into that in Mage Twenty, especially. But no, on, on you know, in one in in some ways, the people who change reality are the people who decide what reality will be. Yeah. In the, you know, in this world, but they're not riding around on broomsticks throwing fireballs. They're posting memes on uh, on, on on Twitter. They're buying. They're buying. They're buying social media companies. 
you know, yeah. platforming certain people and deplatforming other people. That's absolutely reality control. We get into that in Mage 20. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think you mentioned as well, I think in the latest uh, law of the, law of the of, no, I'll say that again, law of the traditions, you mentioned actually how um, the COVID um, conspiracy theories are like you know, of the, and the anti-vaxxers came about because a certain platform was popularizing misinformation like how this chips in vaccines and it was just like um i had an argument with an acquaintance and they're saying oh like i'm not getting a vaccine why not i said and like my parents live far away uh 150 miles away i couldn't see them my dad had just been um diagnosed with terminal cancer and i couldn't go see them because i couldn't go across boundaries and he said oh it's just all bullshit it's just it's covid's bullshit i said no it's real um it's very real um i said yeah but also we've got you know, like chips in vaccines again no no you've got a smartphone you have a sat nav that is how they track you they do not need to put a microchip in a vaccine just to track you but that thinking was popularized online and some really deep dark rabbit holes out there so you're absolutely right. It's like it, people are kind of changing the perception of reality to match yeah. their ideology. That's I, I get into that. It, it's eerie when uh, when when I did uh, the book of the fallen, uh, which I wrote in 2017 2018, uh, and there's a group in there called the Exes, as in extermination level event, and they are they're an offended group, and the Fendi believe that the ultimate uh, the ultimate enlightenment is oblivion. And the ex to the exes, uh, their goal is the destruction of life, on, uh, all life on Earth, and or all human life. Uh, and they are so extreme that even other Nefandi are you know, oppose them because uh, because those Nefandi don't want the party to end, and the exes would end the party for everyone. Yeah. But one of the exes' tools is pandemics and one of their uh and one of their instruments in that tools is conspiracy theories and there is there is a whole like subplot you know potential subplot in there where somebody creates you know the one of the exes creates a pandemic and has a bunch of 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 people celebrities who spread anti-vax rumors and to see that fiction become reality less than two years later it was was disturbing i can imagine yeah i mean i remember Am I correct in thinking that? I think in the M20 book, you kind of, you asked to see, you wanted to see the question. I think it might have been the player's guide for M20. And they asked, there was a question like, would there ever be a, um, like a, a an Afandic uh, player guide? guide. Yeah. And you said, no, no, never. But then no. you got the book of the phone. What, what, why did you change your mind? If you don't mind me asking. I didn't change my mind. I wrote it the way that I thought, the way I thought okay. it should be written. Because it's, um, as I mentioned earlier, I've had I've, I've had you know real experience with metaphysical subcultures. Yeah. I've lost people to cults. I've seen, I have I have experienced the unfortunate realities of what happens when people use black magic. Uh, whether you view yeah. that as uh, human psychology tricks of human psychology, or whether you you view that as the movement of metaphysical forces and extra dimensional entities, is is you know depends on what you believe. I know from my experience and my perceptions that those things happen. And so my insistence when people began asking for an Effendi player's guide back in the 90s was I'm never going to do that because you don't turn into a 10 foot tall 
Captain Planet with a body count. You don't turn into a parasitic super corpse. If you're a ghost, you're not affecting the real world. Um, you know, the material world. Uh, we'll make an argument about ghosts yeah. and reality, but you know, um, you you are not. You do not possess. Um, you know, fairy blood probably. Um, but people do practice magic. And yeah. Whether or not you can throw a fireball in this reality, as we experience it, no, you cannot. You know conjure a fireball and throw it down main street but you can create uh, a you can create a panic with a video and that yeah. absolutely changes reality um and you can make a as as somebody i knew in college create a cult convince a number of people to join that cult um give them a lot of drugs and have them digging up bodies and sacrificing animals and i said i do not ever want to be associated with yeah. something that inspires somebody to do that or yeah. to think that that's okay because when you're when you're dealing with role-playing games you're dealing with an interactive fantasy as opposed to uh as, as opposed to a passive fantasy reading a book is a passive fantasy watching a movie watching a tv show the story happens you are not a participant in the story you may have an emotional reaction to it but you do not change the story because you're watching it or reading it in a role-playing game you are the story and so as a designer it is imperative to me, having seen people go off the rails um, with role-playing games um, and with stuff that's not gaming-oriented, but that takes people's minds and fucks with them, I believe it is absolutely imperative as a designer that you realize that when you say you are a, you're also saying, isn't that cool? Yeah. And I didn't ever want somebody to think that, that being an offendant was cool. So what I did with Infertilism, the Path of Screams, which I did in the late 90s for, uh, um, for a Sorcerer's Crusade, and with the Book of the Fallen was, I said, no. Yes, there are people who believe this. Yes, there absolutely are people who do this. Do you want to be none of them? Rather, do you want to be one of them? I sure as fuck hope you don't, <laughs> because those people are horrible. And those people do horrendous things. And those horrendous things have a human cost. And in the Book of the Fallen and Fallen Companions, I explore what that cost is um, and say, you know, this is what they believe. These are the tools they use. These are how to recognize and counter these tools. Because when I was doing the book, I was like, this, this has to be something other than the atrocity exhibition. You know, yes, yeah. I could be, you know, the role playing, the role playing version of, you know, Otto Dix's paintings of World War One, which, you know, horrified and appalled people. Uh, I could do that. But what fun is that? You know, obviously, when you're when you're designing a game, it has to be entertaining and it has to be engaging. And for me, it has to be meaningful. Um, what meaning do I want to put into this book? Because and this is I was answering this question for someone else just yesterday. It's like, why did you do it? I was like, because somebody would have. And I didn't trust somebody who hadn't had my experiences and didn't have my my absolute conviction that you have to be careful with this shit. Um, to just do, here's the Nefandi player's guy. Is it being a Nefandi Nito? <laughs> Let's carve up babies. <laughs> Fuck that. No, because I know that 99.9% of the people who play this game are just going to go, no, this is just fantasy. There's going to be those, those people in there. Because, again, we had the experience with this at White Wolf. We had people who would call us up going, I, I need to speak to the author of the Book of Nod. And, you know, put on Andrew or somebody and be like, hi, you know, I need to speak to Aristotle de Laurent. There is no Aristotle de Laurent. Yes, there is. 
no, that that's fiction. But I actually have met the vampires. I've met this person. There are people um, who do take this stuff. I mean, I'm glad that Mage has been a positive influence for you. I would not want somebody to want to become Vormos. Uh, I would not nope. want somebody uh, to 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 think that creating a pandemic and and destroying human life would be a good thing. Um, so I had to make the I had to, and emotionally this was a very very hard book to write uh, because I had to make sure I, I I submerged myself for a while in in human depravity and not the cool fun kind, but the no this is you know you know selling selling kids um you know sell, selling kids out of a out of out of a, a a truck is not neat and fun but people do do it um you know taking promising somebody a better life and then taking their passport and turning them into your slave is not cool and neato but there are people who do it um you know creating a a conspiracy that leads to somebody shooting up a pizza place uh, it may have been fun and neat for Alex Jones, but it sure as hell wasn't fun and neat for the people in that pizza place. Yeah. Or for the guy who went to jail for, for shooting it up. And that's that to me. And we were talking about this a little earlier, how we are in the middle of a real reality war um, was absolutely essential for me when writing the book of the fallen and fallen companions, which is uh, stuff that I'd started writing for the book of the fallen. I knew wouldn't fit. So I put it aside and then wrote it, wrote a book around it later are about recognizing the people who really are shaping our reality in real life, not with, you know, not with, with, um, you know, broomsticks and fireballs, but with memes um, and with broadcasts uh, and recognizing how those people um, endanger our lives, endanger our societies and endanger our health um, mm. and really, really do fuck with our minds. Like that guy I knew back in college, um, I'm still in touch with one of the people whose minds was fucked, fucked with by that guy almost 40 years ago. He's still a mess. Most That's how much damage that these yeah. people can do. Um, and so for me, the Book of the Fallen is not a player's guide to Nefandi. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a guide for how to recognize the real Nefandi and how to oppose them because we have to. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've read the uh, I've read the um, book of the fallen, and it is a harrowing book to read. Absolutely harrowing, and I came out with the general feeling: no, I don't want to play one, and I just tend to stick. <laughs> Good. To, yeah, and I just tend to stick to stick to um, putting them in my games as being the as the enemy that everyone has no problem punching. It's like it's like the Nazis; you have yeah. no problem punching a Nazi. And, and yet, in and in mage, I mean, yes. Now we have that kind of grey morality between the, with the, between the traditions and the technocracy, and the disparates and the marauders. But it comes like you know, they, some do some yeah, very shitty things to each other. But it comes to Nafandi, yeah, punch him. Yeah, there is that. Oh. that yeah, flat responsive. Yeah, punch him. Yeah, and yet, and this is one of the things that the Book of the Fallen and Fallen Companions are are about. Yes. Most people want to punch Nazis, and yet Nazism is resurgent in the in our real world. Fascism yeah. is resurgent in our real world. We are literally we are we are former president here, and some people still think he is the president. Talk about reality wars. Yeah. But our former president had a staff, you know, had had a a managerial advisor 
who is a actual fascist, who is a fan of, of Julius Evola, and who talked about Julius Evola was one of the great minds of the 20th century. Julius Evola was so fascist that he thought Mussolini was too literal. But we had Steve Bannon in the Oval Office telling the president to be more like Julius Evola. We have people in, in this world right now who are wearing Nazi, who are wearing Nazi armbands, who are flying Nazi flags, who are throwing Nazi salutes, um, who, and who feel that that's perfectly okay. And I felt it was absolutely imperative, it's one of the reasons I did the Book of the Fallen and Fallen Companions, to understand that Nazis are not just some, and Nazis, fascists, whatever word you want to use, are not just some abstract cartoon villain to punch in an Indiana Jones movie. They are the people who are really there, and those people have reasons for what they do. Yeah. Does that mean that I think you should play a Nazi? Fuck no, I think you should fucking punch a Nazi. But it yeah. is important to understand why a Nazi does what he or she does, what, why the Nazi believes, and more to the point, how they can get you to believe that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, one of the influences on the Book of the Fallen was that we lost some friends to Q, uh, not even to QAnon, we lost some friends to MAGA, and they were good people. They, this was, um, they, they were, I, I, one of them for a while, I considered, you know, uh, my, I, I called him brother. Um, and yet, the tactics that the people who the red pillars that's how he got in there talk about ironies and 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 reality wars how a bunch of people took a film by two trans filmmakers uh, in which a multicultural diverse genderqueer cast discovers that reality is more you know is, is more than what they're given and then they turn these people turn that realization into something that is used to attack trans people queer people, female people, and non-white people. Right there is a perfect example of, of, re, of real real life reality wars and real life reality war tactics. But these, these people, the, the red pillars, convinced our friends that, um, I'm still not sure exactly how they did it, but basically they found their, they found their way into our friends' thinking process and convinced them that it was actually more rational to view us the people who the, the diverse queer trans pagan people who had welcomed our friends as family that we were the bad guys and our and we lost our friends to that and so with the the book of the fallen and fallen companions i was like here's how to recognize the the games that these people play with your mind because i don't want to lose any more people to that and i sure as fuck don't want those people in charge of my reality absolutely not no, and I mean, like, um, were you involved in like the book of the um, Lord's editions as well? Uh, yeah, actually, I, I wrote the I wrote the first half of the introduction, and I wrote the Cult of Ecstasy. Talk about how life experiences will change your views. <laughs> um, I wrote the chapter on the Cult of Ecstasy, and I was also we that was a very collaborative book in which uh, the, the authors you know talked to each other about how do we think, and, and this is a good example of, of changes in in Mage. Uh, over the last 30 years, because in Mage first edition, uh, Mage first edition was written by, you know, a bunch of 20 somethings, 20 something suburbanites, not all of whom were white kids, but most of us were white kids um, who had grown up with a particular set of realities and assumptions and media. It turns out that some, some of those things were really, were really flawed and really wrong. And uh, one of the core ideas, and I address this in the, the, the book of um, the book of secrets uh, in the essay, Magic and the Fascist Urge, one of the core ideas in first edition mage was 
change reality for magic and win the magic. And, and man, isn't, isn't neat that you can blow up a city block because you want to bring magic back to the world? What if you happen to be one of the people living on that city block? What if you happen to be, you know, what if, what if you're, you're, what if you got burned in that fire? You know, what if you lost your home? Um, what if, you know, your, 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 your husband or your wife or your girlfriend or your roommate or your kid got killed by that wizard who thought that they should bring back the mythic age? And that's where a, a big part of, because I had grown up in that kind of neighborhood where, where, uh, where, you know, we, one of our neighbors was, was shot by, uh, was, you know, was, was shot and one of our neighbors was beaten with a baseball bat. He deserved it, but, but he was beaten by a gang that broke into his house, you know, broke into his room, which was downstairs from where me and my then wife were living uh, and beat him almost to death with baseball bats. I grew up, not grew up in, but I spent several years in a neighborhood like that. So I brought this perspective of it's not that neat. You know, yes, it's great that you that you believe in in bringing back the old ways. What happens to the people who are caught in what you think the old ways should be? Um, and as that became more and more a part of our real reality in the time since 1993, I felt it was it was important to address flat out the idea that the, one of the core ideas in Mage was itself problematic, um, which was the idea that you should claim reality. Who's reality for whom and how are you claiming it? And what effect does it have on people? You should really think about this. Um, how this how this ended up um, how this ended up playing out uh, uh, through critiquing that idea um, is very much a part of, of, of the Mage 20 line in in, uh, in general. Um, and I felt like even for the even for the most benevolent groups it was important to look at exactly what it what it was you were trying to bring about and how you were trying to bring it about and that maybe instead of fighting over it we should look at the bigger picture and unite to save our world first from the people who would destroy us if they could or would rule us if they could and also from the consequences of our own actions climate change hello in lore of the traditions part of what we were getting at in that book is how not only the traditions themselves changed in a meta plot stance from the medieval group of of wizards that they were in the very beginning to the 21st century shapers of reality they are now but also how the game itself on a meta level how the game itself has changed from throw a fireball into at home and why and in the Lord the traditions, we all showed it also had a much more Lord of the traditions also has a much more uh, culturally diverse writing crew uh, instead of white folks or white folks once removed writing about dream speakers. Uh, James Sombrano, who is uh, Chirakawa, um, wrote the section on the dream speakers from an indigenous American standpoint uh, instead of having people who watched a bunch of Kung Fu movies and, and read a few, um, you know, read a few books of Chinese philosophy, writing about the Akashiana. Uh, we have Hiro Makota, uh, who is a Japanese American author, um, write about the, uh, the Akashiana. Uh, and in the case of my chapter, the cult of ecstasy, which was that in itself was a journey. And I, I, the, I will, I'll stick that pin in that <laughs> tangent for a moment. Um, uh, but in the case of the cult of ecstasy, 
uh, I took it from sex, drugs, and rock and roll are awesome, dude, into so about consent and about whether or not it's okay to initiate somebody into the cult of ecstasy when they're 12. And how do you initiate them into the cult of ecstasy when they're 12? Should you do that at all? No, not when they're 12. Should you maybe do that at a, at a certain age? Well, it depends on whether or not they want it. And so I made that very much the, the fulcrum of the approach that I took to the cult of ecstasy in 20, I think I wrote that chapter in 2021. But in any case, my real life experience had changed significantly um, since 1993. And part of that real life experience, and this is where the tangent, the pin comes out of the tangent. So when the cult of ecstasy was originally presented in, in, uh, in mage first edition, it was. And obviously it needs more, more, uh, more, more substance than that. Um, and Daniel Greenberg and I talked about it when working on the book of uh, the book of shadows in 94, how to give the cult of ecstasy um, substance in terms of <laughs> substance rather than substances uh, and, and view their perception of how how reality has changed as a personal journey through challenge rather than as yes fireball and in the cult of ecstasy tradition book i ended up having a journey of my own because the original author i had hired for it um was not able to wrap their head around what i had in mind in part because i wasn't entirely sure what how to present the cult uh and so choked up a hairball on it and i wrote the book in two and a half weeks um in the process of writing the book in two and a half weeks which fortunately i had enough real life experience in actual ecstatic practices um that um i was able to just basically wing it off the top of my head but in the process of doing that i ended up doing an, un an unintended um reflection on myself because at the time that i wrote the at the time that I wrote the Cult of Ecstasy Tradition book, I was Cassie. The framework for the first edition Cult of Ecstasy Tradition book is there is a person who is named, is a person named Cassie who has great power potentially, but is afraid to use it and who has restrained herself in many regards of how she lives her life because she's afraid of how she's going to be perceived by other people. And she meets this person who resembles her um who is like cut the bullshit cut the fucking bullshit wake up you me you need to be more awake you need to take your power you need to use it you need to explore you need to break all the chains of who you think you are because this isn't you and if you're i'm going to give you this chance and if you don't take this chance i'm going to walk away you will never fucking see me again you'll spend the rest of your life wondering who you could have been and the book is the journey of Cassie becoming Aria and recognizing that Aria, the person who is like, wake up, is not a separate person at all. Aria is Cassie's vision of the future. The avatar, which is a concept in mage, um, can take many different forms. The avatar is basically your awakened self who talks to your, you know, your current self and challenges you to learn more and be more um, in the case of Cassie and Aria, Aria 
is Cassie's future is a vision of Cassie's future self. The cult of ecstasy, or also time wizards, is a whole other thing with that. But in any case, in the, in the course of writing the cult of ecstasy book, I realized that I was telling myself to wake the fuck up and stop being so locked down about so many things. So when I left um, White Wolf, uh, when I formed my own company, and that company um, did really well until it didn't. Uh, that was the company that produced Deliria Fairy Tales for the Millennium. That's a whole other tangent. We're not going to get into that. Um, um, but my life broke down again. Uh, my marriage broke down again. And I just decided at that point, like, fuck it, man, I'm going to become Aria. So I did. That's when the Seder, when I went out, when I adopted the Seder name, I got involved with even more ecstatic practices than I had been before. I got involved with. Uh, um, the, I had already been to Burning Man several points by uh, several times by that point, but I got really involved in burner culture. Uh, yay! Um, and I, on some levels, that was a phenomenal time in my life, and on other levels, it was a precarious time in my life where various, I I was raped by several of my lovers. Um, uh, I saw people who I considered friends doing things that I thought were atrocious, and so I came out of that experience with a lot of with a lot of perspective on how your actions affect other people and how enlightenment is not your enlightenment is not your excuse and other people's souls are not your toys and i literally bring that into the rules um, of the cult of ecstasy in the 21st century when i wrote that i know here's i'll take all those mm. changes and wrap it back down so in lore of the traditions i write i write about how the cult of ecstasy who are now rechristening themselves the sahaya which was their original name um but how they are there's a struggle now within the cult of ecstasy between the people who are like dude check out this guitar solo it's otherworldly and the people who are like so about that 16 year old you initiated without looking at whether or not they should be initiated at 16 let's talk about that and the cult of ecstasy is having that wake-up call of these tools which historically are it's not just you know our creation it's not just our fictional creations one of the things um, that we did a lot in Mage and continue to do in Mage a lot is make fiction out of reality. And so the there is not a real life cult of ecstasy, but the tools that are employed and the, the paradigms that the cult of ecstasy uses, uh, employs, are real practices, are real tools, are things people actually do in this real world. And so in real tantric practices in real sex drugs and rock and roll you know subcultures in real work with entheogens um mind expanding quote-unquote drugs smart drugs and so forth um there is a lot of questionable behavior historically and what i did in the cult of ecstasy chapter for lord of traditions was call that on the carpet and go so so these are see, things yeah. you should think about. <laughs> and it's a discussion that needed. I mean, where do you go from here? I mean, you've written all the traditions. Are we, can we expect more traditional books? Are, are you going to work on new things? Where does Sater go from here? Sater is currently working on his own stuff. Ah, um, I, I don't, I don't, I, I thank you. Cause I, I don't, I don't want to get onto, into a big tangent about this. Let's just yeah. say that I have been in this business. I've been in the role-playing game business um, for for 31 years, I've been writing professionally for almost 35, and the majority of the things that I have written have been work for hire, which means that I create things that other people profit off of. 
And for a while, that was not a bad trade-off. Um, when, you know, when you go from working in a shoe store for $5 an hour to having a $25,000 a year salary plus benefits, that's a pretty awesome trade-off. Yeah. But when you're writing for three to five cents a word for something that somebody else who was literally a child when you wrote it is profiting off and you're not, and they're making movie deals off it, and you are not even going to be mentioned, much less see the reward for that. We're seeing this a lot with the MCU and the DCU. Yeah. It is exactly the same situation in the role-playing game field. Exactly the same. The, the business model was the same. People create things. The creators create things. I guess here is the tangent, I guess. But people create things for you know a few bucks, and 20, 30, 40 years down the line, some bunch of billionaires is selling them and making movies off of them. And those people who created those things are completely shut out. And those people are on assistance. Those people are, I mean, one of the things that made me as vocal as I have become about it is that my, my, uh, my longtime mage collaborators who also worked on Werewolf and Changeling, uh, Nikki Ray and Jackie Cassida, they were living in a trailer and Jackie died um, of, of COVID and Nikki had COVID but didn't die, but has been left with significant health problems. Both of them were in their 70s. And these people wrote hundreds. Um, they worked on hundreds of role-playing game supplements. They are literally some of the architects, not only of, of, of not only of the World of Darkness, but of, of um, uh, Dungeons and Dragons. They worked on Ravenloft and so forth. And Nikki almost lost her home. Nikki almost wound up in the street at 70 years old. Um, because of this business model. And a bunch of us did a fundraiser. And fortunately, Nikki had, it was, was able because the fans, because the fans and fellow professionals said, we don't want Nikki Ray to wind up on the street. They have and continue to, to give money to keep Nikki going. But that's, that is a fundamental problem in this fucking business model. Yeah. Is that the people who created Superman, Captain America, Wolverine, Mage, Vampire, Dungeons and Dragons, etc. The majority of us wound up with fucking nothing. And yeah, I had a decent salary 30 years ago, but I don't get a fucking cent off of it now. And, you know, Hollywood is optioning um, the world of darkness. Not a single creator of that world of darkness is going to get a fucking cent from that. And yes, I am at this point, I am angry because we are now in our 50s, 60s, 70s with nothing to show but bragging rights on a, on a shelf full of books. And we have fans. That is awesome. I love the fans. Folks like you are why I keep doing this. But what the future looks like for Phil Brucato is to stop selling my creations to make other people rich. That makes sense. I've worked. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I, I've worked on several dozen intellectual properties, and several of them are multi-million-dollar intellectual properties, and I don't get royalties or residuals from any of them. Yeah, I, that reminds you of like uh, Harlan Ellison's classic video, like you know, yep. pay the damn Always writer, pay, pay, pay the, the writer. writer, pay the writer. I mean, like um, he was approached by I think Warner Brothers for a Terminator film. Um, uh, no, really... the Terminator was Terminator was inspired by two of his uh, uh, two of his short stories. And yeah, said that he wrote for the Twilight Zone. Uh, and, yeah, not the yeah. Twilight Zone. Um, it wasn't the Twilight. The Man Zone. with the Glass Hand, I think, was the name of the short yeah, story. Demon, Demon with the Glass Hand. Yeah, Demon with the Glass Hand. It was. Uh, 
ah oh, fuck it wasn't twilight zone it was the outer limits outer limits outer limits yeah but that's the same it's the same thing the people yeah. who worked on outer limits people who worked on twilight zone people who worked on doctor who everybody was there was paid a salary or it was work for hire these these intellectual properties have legacies long tales that are decades old at this point and fans who have grown up on them um, and who, as, as you said earlier, have been influenced, but the people who created them, unless they were George Lucas, get nada. Yeah. And that business model needs to change. Fortunately, we have the tools to do that now, um, which is why uh, Sandy and I uh, have formed our own company, uh, Quiet Thunder Productions, which we, we actually formed over a decade ago, but we have been publishing um, my new games and some of my fiction as well. I, I'm, I'm, both traditionally published and self-published because that's for the creator, whatever medium that is, Um, whether that is, you know, TV movies, whatever, you might get a bigger paycheck up front if you're writing for Hollywood, but you retain creative control and you get the rights and you get the royalties. I mean, look at the, 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 the SAG after strike right now. Exactly. I was thinking writers guild strike right now. That's exactly what this is about. Because we have, once again, we have writers who have cre- who are creating things that are getting, yeah, sure, you got a $60,000 paycheck for that, and 15% of that went for your lawyer, and 30% of that went for taxes, and a bunch of that went to maintain the rent in your Hollywood apartment, and how much of it do you have six months later? And the producers who raked in tons of money during the pandemic are talking about replacing you with AI. I've Fuck doubled, that. yeah, absolutely. No, <laughs> Fuck um, that. I've doubled with AI. I've like, in, I'm mm-hmm. covered technology, cybersecurity. I thought I'm going to have a play with it, and yeah, mm-hmm. it's it works. It produces basic stuff, but it lacks the humanity, subtlety, and emotional core that writers bring. Um, I once asked it. Tell me about Richie James, Richie James Edwards um, from the Manuscript Preachers. Mm-hmm. And he told me, yes, he is the lead singer of the um, Manuscript Preachers. One problem. He's been missing for 30 years and declared dead 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And But it was telling me, yeah, Richie James Edwards is the lead singer. No, it's not. No, not anymore. But it doesn't handle that sort of, again, the ambiguities. Or, 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 oh, sorry, go ahead. Or conflicts of information. Mm-hmm. You can't handle there, there's, go on. the There, there, there is a uh, an article that I ran across uh, in my feed a few months ago. You know, ten greatest songs from Kate Bush. Seven of them were by the band Bush. <laughs> Not only did you have an AI write write that article yeah. from scraping a bunch of sources, but nobody fucking checked it before they posted it online. Absolutely, yeah, and yeah, it's. I mean, I can see I can see AI working well in structured, specific sectors. I'm thinking legals, in the, le- in the, in the legal aspect where you kind of you have laws which they abide by and different statutes and references, like you're writing writing letters. That's good. Mm-hmm. apparently is going to be a massive change. But writing stories, no. no. And even no, because, writing laws, do you do you want do you want somebody, do you want a computer who has no human experience? One of the important things. I, I, I'm not a lawyer, but yeah. I have enough experience with with lawyers and 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 the <clears throat> contracts. Yeah. Um, 
to know how much human perspective is still required when you're dealing with laws, um, because those laws affect humans in ways that are hard to foresee unless you are a human. And sometimes even when you are a human who is writing and signing those contracts. Again, back to the writer's strike or back yeah. to the work for hire thing. When you're 20, you know, when you're 25 years old, writing, you know, writing game material for, for this, you know, for this company of people like you seems like a great idea. 30 years later, when the, when the intellectual property belongs now belongs to somebody else and that somebody else is bad mouthing you, um, you know, and, and is, is profiting off of your work, um, that 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 bargain seems like a whole maybe a, a, a less good than it was at the, in the beginning, um, and and I mean I, I used a I used AI once uh, with um, uh, some of the illustration for Fallen Companions uh, because partly because it's self published was not crowdfunded by the by the rules of the storytellers vault you cannot crowdfund uh, yeah. those books everything you pay for has to come out of pocket and i did pay uh, a thousand dollars to the artist who worked on it but one of the artists who worked on it who is a professional artist and who works in other media was experimenting with mid-journey and posting her experiments online it's like that is badass and it wasn't badass from a wow that looks neat it was badass from a that's fucked up that's fucked up in a way that I want this book to look. So I got a mid journey. Uh, I got a mid journey um, membership uh, and I proceeded to construct a bunch of really surreal, fucked up nightmare fuel images that um, used the unc use the uncanny and inhuman abilities of AI to construct these, these freakish images that were really disturbing to look at. For that purpose, AI made a useful tool. Then I found out how it was doing those things, whose artwork it was scraping. And then I saw much more to, to, my, to my anger. Um, I watched as my friends on um, uh, the, the, art, the, the art source, uh, the, the art communities, um, I'm blanking on the names off the top of my head, but my okay. friends were suddenly given, given this new TOS of, oh, and by the way, anything you post on this can be scraped for AI images. And then I started seeing my friends losing jobs to people who were cobbling together images with AI. I was like, you know, fuck that. It was a useful tool once. It was a fun toy for a few months. But when I see the real, once again, going back to that, that real, real long, you know, real life, long-term effects of something, this is something that took a neat idea and a potentially useful tool and turned it into an into exploitation of people who I care about. Fuck that. So I won't be using it again. Absolutely. Uh, well, it's been an hour and a half. I could happily <laughs> I do that. Chatting. I could happily keep chatting to you, Satya, but I'm not going to take up any more of your time. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. Um it has been absolute joy. Um, where can our listeners find you on the internet? Uh, I have a Patreon. Uh, talk about supporting the artists. I have a Patreon under Phil Brucato. Uh, I have books uh, on you know both self-published and traditionally published on Amazon, um, Barnes and Noble, and so forth. Uh, Drive through RPG. I have several major books that do pay me royalties on the Storytellers Vault, uh, as well as the ones that I've produced for various different publishers that are available through drive through RPG. You can find me on TikTok. Uh, you can, 
no longer Twitter. Uh, talk about billionaires uh, destroying the world. I have dropped my Twitter account. I'm still on Facebook. Uh, I'm on I'm on Blue Sky, uh, and I'm on TikTok. And we'll see how well that goes. Uh, <laughs> um, and I am um, decidedly emphatic on all of those platforms. <laughs> so, so uh, well, yeah. Follow uh, Satya. He's absolutely fascinating person. And read his books. Play Mage is a fantastic game. And this is Peter E. Ellison saying goodbye. Take care. I hope to speak soon. Bye.